0: Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast, brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast program. My name is Jeff, and as usual, along with me is our co-host, Brian. Good morning, Brian. How are you doing? Hey, Jeff. Good morning. Doing very well. Thank you. Yeah, today we're going to cover an interesting topic that in some ways deals with what is not in the Bible. Now, that may surprise our listeners that we would spend a podcast talking about something the Bible doesn't cover. But That's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. Now, certainly the Bible covers, uh, generally speaking, a vast span of time and history. I mean, back from the you know very creation of the universe, up to roughly the first century AD and yet there are some time periods that the Bible just simply skips over. I mean for our listeners that shouldn't be surprising since the purpose of the Bible you know is to describe God's interaction with humanity. Uh, you know, it was really never intended to be some kind of comprehensive encyclopedia or textbook on world history. And in some ways, what might confuse newer readers of the Bible is that even the books that you see, you know, in the Old Testament and the New Testament that are of historical nature, you know, they are not necessarily put into the Bible uh, table of contents kind of perspective. Not necessarily put in chronological order, you know, one after the other. Uh, for example, and this is where we're going to kind of spend zero in our our time and spend most of it today. You know, if you were reading the Bible in chronological order, meaning when events occurred, and you weren't really paying attention to either the verse numbering or the chapter divisions or the book divisions, but just simply reading event A happened, then B, then C, then D, then E, again, historical chronological order, you would encounter the following passage. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and the judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, if you were reading this, if you saw my notes that I'm I'm reading off of, you would have noticed uh, what sometimes called an ellipsis, three dots, in the middle of that reading. Uh, verbally... Uh, you might have detected uh, a prolonged pause between the phrase, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest. There's a pause in between there. Now, again, that's if you were reading the Bible, you know, in a chronological manner. Now, interestingly enough, the first part of my reading, before the pause, or before the three-dot ellipsis, again, if you were reading it, comes from the book of Malachi, chapter 4, which happens to be the very last book in the Old Testament, uh, in order, you know, table of content order. And the second part, after the pause, comes from Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, one of the four Gospels at the beginning of the New Testament. Now, what might surprise our readers a little bit, or our listeners, I should say, is that pause roughly covers a 430-year gap in the narrative that the Bible is providing in terms of a historical narrative. Uh, roughly 430 years between you no know, roughly 435 BC and roughly 7 BC. Now, if you happen to be a little bit acquainted with United States history, you know, 430 years. You know, that's a little bit longer than all the events in U.S. history. From the founding of the first colony in the New World at Jamestown, Virginia in roughly 1600, you know, the rise of the 13 colonies, the Declaration of Independence in 1776, the Civil War, uh, 1861, westward expansion to California, the invention of electricity, the Great Depression, World War II, and the Cold War, the moon landings, All the way up to the present day which as we're recording this is 2022 430 years so that's at least from our perspective a huge gap of time with just stuffed full of events recent events here with the united states a 430 year time period so it should make our listeners wonder okay so if the bible you know leaves you know, the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, roughly 435 BC, and says nothing, and then all of a sudden picks up the narrative 430 years later with Luke chapter 1, makes you wonder what happened. So, Brian, uh, for our listeners, does this gap have, you know, any kind of like a name? And really, should Bible students even care what happened between the Old and the New Testaments?
0: Yeah, good questions and I'll answer the second one first really, you know, we should certainly have an interest because as you arrive in Matthew, you know, some of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you start seeing people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and you're thinking, well, who are these people? I don't remember reading anything about them under the Old Testament, well, because they rose to power during those that gap of time you mentioned, right? So Yeah, it definitely has a name, and this time period is sometimes called the silent years, or people will refer to it as the period between the testaments. But to your point, Jeff, when you think about 400 plus years, it's really fascinating to me to think about what was that like for God's children during that time. They would have been familiar with the prophecies regarding a messiah, And I can imagine they were just wondering, like, when's this going to happen, right? That sort of thing. And then to your point as Bible students, you know, we often have this period of time that's really somewhat of a blind spot, you might say to us, because there's this gap in our knowledge. We don't really know what happened. And so therefore, some might say, well, if God didn't feel it was important enough to let us know, then maybe we shouldn't really care about it, right? But yet, you know, it's it's very interesting to know because, once again, when you start reading about what was that region like where the Israelites were at, what was it like when Christ came to this earth, this gives you a really good idea of what life was like and what happened from the closing of the Old Testament uh, until the New. And so, anyhow, some might not think it's worth, once again, studying because God didn't say anything about it, but yet there's Plenty of reasons why and so you know just like with us history or history for the countries where our listeners live you know there's going to be a large number of regional events that shape a country you know you think about influential people in a given country or cultural shifts that basically shape the country that somebody lives in and certainly when it comes to the context of the new testament there are many events that occurred in that period of time that shaped what life was like during the new testament so for instance you can see hints of this when you look in the new testament and you see things like baptism terms like synagogue as i mentioned earlier pharisees or sadducees hellenists caesar centurion crucifixion all these terms that sort of popped up in the new testament that you don't see in the old once again may not make much sense initially. So, without insight into what happened between the Testaments, eh, we'd be handicapped, right, in our appreciation of what occurred, once again, why life was like what it was like uh, as we read about it. So, anyhow, uh, let's let's look a little bit closer into these silent years. So, if you look at some different sources, you might ask yourself, well, if there's no information in the Bible, how do we learn more about this period? What sources should we be going to? And really, I think we would all understand that you need to go to scholars, right? You need to go to historians, secular historians, just like we do for any other kind of history in the country where you live or if you're looking at world history. And so in this case, you know, you could look at writers from ancient Greece and Rome. There was a gentleman by the name of Flavius Josephus, who's a well-known first century uh, Jewish historian. Uh, and he has a book that he wrote. I've got a copy of it, at least a summarized copy of his writings. And, you know, they are secular. This, His documents and his writings are uninspired, of course, and these are just historical accounts from men. So like any historical accounts, you want to compare it to make sure what you're reading is accurate. But anyhow, when you think about, uh, you might have heard this term, apocrypha. So, you know, when you think about looking into that, um, or you might have heard the term deuterocanon, which, is, which comes from Catholics. Well, these are a couple of books that popped up um, that we might say are of doubtful origin. They were written somewhere between 200 B.C. and 400 A.D. And in the case of like the deuterocanon, it was accepted by Catholics and generally rejected by Protestants, but the Protestants have their Apocrypha and you know when you think of you may have heard of of these books the first and second maccabees which provide some historical insight into this period of time we call the silent years Um, now these books were not included in the bible and so once again we talk about doubtful origin any books that were included in the bible were scrutinized very closely, and we actually recorded a podcast on the Bible and how the Bible came to be, so you could certainly listen to that. But anyhow, Jeff, I'll turn it over to you for any other comments and and to kind of continue on talking about this gap, this period of time. Well, thank you, Brian.
1: Yeah, on the one hand, you know, and some of our listeners may say, well, wait a minute, why are you referring to things like, you know, the Maccabees, first and second Maccabees? which indeed are, you know, books of doubtful origin. You know, the Protestants would call that the part of the Apocrypha. Of course, the Catholics would call it part of their, as you mentioned, their uh, canon, If I if I pronounce that right. But if you simply view them as potential historical documents, just like those written by Josephus, just like those written by Greek and Roman historians, which may be accurate to some degree, may have some inaccuracies, you know, it... Certainly, they can be yet another potential source of history during this time period, so long as you recognize that they're not, you know, inspired like the rest of uh, the scriptures. And certainly, as as we'll see in a few moments, a lot of world history occurred in that, you know, 430-year-plus period. So, you know, we have a lot of information from a lot of writers that, you know, again, talk about, you know, world events, events around the Mediterranean, and particularly uh, in the uh, Eastern Mediterranean, uh, the land of Canaan, as you said, where God's people dwelt. So let's just kind of begin, if you will, exploring these silent years, you know, starting at one side, um, if you think in terms of like, you know, building a bridge between the Old and the New Testaments. So on the one side of this gap, as we mentioned before, we have the last book that you will encounter in the The Bible, the book of Malachi. Now, from a historical context, and let me set a, a little bit of groundwork here. You know, at this point in world history, you know, the Babylonian kingdom that you know um, conquered, you know, the the, uh, the land of Israel, uh, and you know, took Jews out into Babylonian captivity. That particular kingdom uh, has fallen at the time of Malachi. Uh, to the Persians, you know, roughly a hundred years previously. Uh, And that transition from Babylonian to Persian just happens to be, you know, predicted in Daniel chapter 2 verse 39. You know, by this point some of the Jews that were in Babylonian captivity have returned back to the land of Canaan, they have rebuilt the temple which was destroyed by the Babylonians, They've rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem again, which were you know, broken down by the Babylonians in the siege of Jerusalem uh, under the combined leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. And if you're familiar with you know, Old Testament books, you can immediately recognize both of those as historical accounts, uh, books that were included in the Old Testament. Now, part of the problem that was encountered once the Jews had returned, some of the Jews had returned back to the land of Canaan, uh, they weren't really prospering as had been predicted by the various prophets. And a reason was, you know, they were starting to lapse once again into a variety of sins. And that included mingling with and marrying some of the foreigners, you know, in the land, which they were told, you know, not to do, you know, under the law of Moses. Uh, They were not paying the proper tithes to the priests. They were offering up inferior or blemished uh, animal sacrifices as part of their worship to God. Uh, They were even working on the Sabbath, uh, which, under the law of Moses, uh, required the death penalty. And all of these kinds of uh, lapse into sins uh, is recorded in Nehemiah chapter 13. And again, that was you know uh, just prior to Malachi. Well, on the scene comes Malachi again roughly around eh, 435-ish uh, BC. and he reminds them of God's love for his people. He condemns them for their unfaithfulness, and in turn, he urges them to repent. And as the book draws to a close, as I quoted when we started the podcast, uh, the book really very fittingly concludes by pointing forward to a time when Elijah, and of course you may recognize that name from the, uh, the divided kingdom, um, you know, Second Kings, Second Chronicles, etc. Elijah, or, or at least Someone like Elijah, as we'll see, will return to prepare the way for the Lord. And of course, as Brian said earlier, you know, those are like references to the coming Messiah, the anointed one. Um, Malachi, again, that's Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. So now we have the people returned from Babylonian captivity, back in Jerusalem, temple rebuilt, walls restored. And to some degree, they're still struggling, just like they were before the Babylonian conquest with various sins that Malachi you know, rebukes them for and looks out into the future, of course, from their perspective, into the unknown future, unknown number of years and says, hey, there's coming a time when Elijah's going to return, going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And that's where the Old Testament narrative stops and our gap begins. So, Brian, what happened next?
0: Yeah, a lot happened after that, didn't it? Had <laughs> it really? to cover four hundred years, but uh, no doubt to start with, we see the rise of the Macedonian or the Grecian Empire. So, as you mentioned, Jeff, at this point, the word of the Lord that we see under the Old Testament in our Bibles goes silent, and about a hundred years after Malachi, the Medio or the Medo-Persian Empire, including the land of Canaan eventually falls into the hands of Alexander III of Macedon in modern Greece, also known as Alexander the Great around 330 BC. Now, we've all heard about Alexander the Great probably just from our our classes in school. Really a great conqueror, if you think about it. And this also, if you were to look in Daniel chapter 2, This, the rise of this empire was the third kingdom of bronze that we see predicted in Daniel chapter 2. And so, that all that happened around 330 BC, where we see once again uh, the Persian Empire taking over here, uh, or or losing out, I should say, falling to uh, Greece and Alexander the Great. The next thing that Is kind of a a major milestone, if you will, between this period of time is the rise of Koine Greek and the Septuagint translation. So, you know, when you think about a large empire that spanned from Greece to modern Turkey, uh, the Middle East, and beyond to parts of India, uh, in fact, it's pretty amazing when you look at a map and see all the empire, all the the or the size of the Grecian Empire at that time. uh, It was amazingly large, and this allowed Greek or Hellenistic culture to become widespread across a lot of the world. And this included the introduction of the Koine Greek language and Greek religion. So once again, from school, some of you might be familiar with some of these Greek gods like Zeus, Hermes, Artemis, uh, or by their Roman names, you might know them as Jupiter, Mercury, and Diana. And so you can see the influence of this culture during that time. Now, due to the rising popularity of the Greek language among the Jews, you know, the Old Testament was translated into Greek around 250 BC. So they took the original Hebrew and translated it into Greek, and this is known as the Septuagint translation. And if you were to look at some of the Greek book names, you know, Genesis looks the same, uh, Deuteronomy spelled a little bit different. It has exodus, I mean, but you can tell that these are the books that we have in the Bible today. Ruth, Psalms, and so forth. And it's most likely the Septuagint version is the one that was used by Jesus. Jesus certainly referred to it. Uh, also the apostles and the early Christians. And so it was uh, also used by Jerome in his Latin translation of the Vulgate Old Testament around 380 A.D., and it's really still today, even, the standard version used in the Greek Orthodox Church. So, speaking of that and speaking of manuscripts, Jeff, do we still have any Bible manuscripts from this period of time?
1: Well, and and that's a good question, because one of the key aspects of Christian evidences is understanding the manuscript evidence, you know, ancient writings that serve as the basis for our Bible and you know how many do we have and where do they originate and you know how far back can you trace them in terms of you know dating dating of the different writings and uh, so that kind of takes us to a topic that we might refer to as the dead sea scrolls which our listeners may have heard about So, keeping in mind, roughly around 250 B.C., you know, again, when the Septuagint was being uh, created or translated from the Hebrew Scriptures, as as Brian indicated, uh, there was a Jewish settlement uh, roughly on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea. uh, And the name of the settlement, and I'll probably butcher the name, was Kirbet Qumran. Uh, Now, almost... Roughly a 1,000 manuscripts were stored in roughly 11 caves nearby that settlement. Again, roughly 250 B.C. when that happened. Uh, They were discovered uh, between uh, 1946 and 1956. And these became known as either the Qumran Caves Scrolls, or as probably more popularly known, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, these scrolls dated roughly between, you know, 380 B.C. and 70 A.D., uh, you know, in, across the time period that we're referring to this morning. Uh, these scrolls, or these manuscripts, were a, kind of an interesting collection, kind of an eclectic uh, variety of different scrolls that people had stored in these caves. Uh, roughly 70%, or I'm sorry, 40% were uh, like Old Testament uh, writings, About 30% we would recognize as related to the Apocrypha. And about 30% were various, you know, sectarian, everyday life kinds of scrolls that they had put aside into these caves. Now, if we want to focus in on the 40% that were related to the Old Testament, uh, those manuscripts, interestingly enough, contain parts from all but one of the books of the Old Testament. Now, What really is more significant, if you will, than, you know, number of scrolls or the dates, et cetera, is if you realize that before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, any manuscripts that we had regarding the Old Testament dated back only to about 1000 AD uh, and didn't really have any copies that we had discovered prior to that. Well, along comes this discovery, you know, again, uh, northwest of the Dead Sea in the mid-1940s and 1950s. And all of a sudden we go from having these Old Testament manuscripts, the oldest ones being, again, about 1000 AD. We push that way back in time, like back another 1,000, 1,200 years. And what's very interesting about that is as they compared the manuscripts, the Old Testament manuscripts found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in that collection, with the ones they had, you know, a 1, thousand, twelve hundred years later, uh, a careful comparison of those two revealed that there was not that much change in the scribal copying, if you will, across a 1,000 plus years, that the uh, transmission of the manuscripts or... Making a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, et cetera, uh, unusually accurate, and of course that just basically you know builds our faith, builds our confidence in the reliability of the Old Testament. So again, Dead Sea Scrolls written roughly during this uh, this period of the silent years, uh, you know, influential at least in terms of you know building our confidence in the Scriptures. So Brian, now that we have so to speak established the you know Grecian Empire. As you said, uh, conquered by Alexander the Great, all the way from Greece in the west to, I think, India in the east, of course, including the land of uh, Canaan. Uh, what happened after he sort of passed off, passed from the scene?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, he I remember studying history about Alexander the Great and he died, of course, when he went all the way over to India, conquered a lot. And like we talked about, had an enormous empire. And after that, we we hear about the Maccabees. Before I get into that, though, I do want to just mention really quick, you know, Jeff, you were talking about the manuscripts the Dead Sea Scrolls and so forth. And just for our listeners, I mean, if, if you haven't had a chance to hear our two-part series on the Bible, Episodes 54 and 55, we spend both of those episodes talking about the origin of the Bible, the reliability of the translations we have today because of things like the Dead Sea Scrolls. So if you haven't heard that, and you're interested in just knowing about, hey, how do we get the Bible that we have today? Episodes 54 and 55. Okay, so back to what happened after the Grecian Empire was formed by Alexander the Great. Well, we have you know a period of time after Alexander's death in 323 BC, where his empire was divided among his four top generals. And so two of the resulting major Grecian factions dominated the Eastern Mediterranean. So you had the Ptolemies, in Egypt and Judea, and the Seleucids, if I'm saying that right, in Asia Minor, Syria, and Persia. And so Judea came under the Seleucid control around 170 BC, according to historians, with the rule of Antichus IV Epiphanes. Uh, While the Ptolemies were tolerant of the Jews, Antichus IV launched religious persecution against them, ordering them to worship Zeus and polluting the temple in Jerusalem. So you can see the influence of them. Now, the Jewish Maccabees revolted against this pagan persecution uh, beginning around 165 BC. And this resulted in the rededication of the temple in 164 BC and the institution of Hanukkah or the Festival of Lights. So that's the first time we hear about that. Uh, eventually, the Maccabees won their freedom from the Seleucids in 141 BC. And uh, this really is when the uh, Hasmonean dynasty was established under the rule of the brother of Judas Maccabeus. So, anyhow, Jeff, uh, this new local rule under the Maccabees, did that last
1: very long? Um, Actually, no, not really uh and one of the things i'll just mention is kind of a side point given the location of the land of canaan on the uh you know eastern mediterranean coast that particular region is almost like the crossroads of a significant portion of the world i mean if you think in terms of sitting right in between you know what we would recognize as europe as well as you know the far east as well as northern africa and so you have this constant ebb and flow of various regional superpowers and battles and kingdoms coming and going sort of like uh, you know the tides if you will you know, kind of washing over this region coming from different directions uh, and so being kind of in the in the center of attention not not necessarily the center of attention but to go anywhere from one continent to another, you tended to go, you know, through this area. Uh, again, we see a, a rich history, uh, which, as you mentioned, with the uh, the fall of Alexander the Great, not only was the uh, his empire divided up, but this land of Canaan kind of sat in between two of the you know ruling sub empires, if you will, and of course battles back and forth. And as you indicated, eventually the the Jews, you know, rose up, threw off the influence of the uh, Seleucids and had sort of like their own little independent kingdom for a while. Now, while the Ptolemies and the Seleucids were, you know, vying, vying for power back and forth, you know, in this eastern Mediterranean region, there was yet another regional empire, regional superpower, if you will. That was starting to rise to power now that particular empire was prophesied in daniel chapter 2 verses 40 through 43 as the in the figure of being an iron and partially iron and clay kingdom what was this empire this would have been the roman empire with their capital in italy and of course as our listeners may be aware from your know, world history, you know, starting in Rome, branching out to Italy, and eventually beyond a great deal beyond. Uh, eventually, at least in terms of the Mediterranean area around the land of Canaan, uh, under the leadership of Julius Caesar, and you may recognize that name from history, you know, would defeat the Greeks and unite the entire Mediterranean region under Roman rule. And of course, now we're under yet another uh, empire, which brings its own set of, you know, customs and culture, et cetera, uh, to include increasing commerce, uh, increasing uh, travel. In fact, you may have heard about, you know, Roman roads and such that were laid down, you know, across the Roman empire, which allowed travel. And of course, under Roman rule, under Roman protection, you know, suppression of you know uprisings, a, a time of relative peace uh, that some historians will would call the Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome, uh, the exchange of ideas, et cetera, et cetera. So, from a land of Canaan perspective, and the Hasmonean dynasty that Brian mentioned, and the Jews in Judea. You know, they originally experienced this influx of Roman influence somewhere around 65 B.C. Uh, But Rome being Rome and doing what they were doing, uh, eventually the Jews lost their independence. Uh, They became a Roman province. uh, And Julius Caesar at the time appointed a man by the name of, and I'm probably going to butcher this name as well, Uh, Antipater, Antipater, something like that, Antipater, the Idumean, to be uh, a governor or a uh, procurator uh, of the area. Now, that name you may not recognize, but you will definitely recognize the name of his son, Herod, uh, whom we know as Herod the Great, who went on to be the first governor of Galilee and later the king of the Jews. He's the Herod that you can read about in Matthew chapter 2 that tried, or actually didn't try, uh, slaughtered a number of infants in the land of Canaan. Uh, Herod, Herod the Great, uh, ruled sort of as governor, you know, underneath Roman uh, rule from roughly 37 B.C. to about 4 B.C. And with that... The stage, if you will, is now set for the silent years to end. We've come basically across the whole gap from roughly 435 B.C. up to about yeah, 10 B.C. to 7 B.C. Um, and all these events that Brian and I have talked about uh, across the previous you know 400 years have now set the stage for the New Testament with the rise of Greek influence Roman influence, a large number of terms and practices that have now come onto the scene. So with that, Brian, it's kind of like an intro. Uh, How about you, uh, if you will, uh, tell our listeners about how this influence, particularly of uh, Greek, uh, starts to show itself uh, in the New Testament?
0: Yeah, it really did have a great influence, and you know, when you see look back we can see god's wisdom in choosing this language i believe in the new testament because it ends up being a frozen language which means it can no longer evolve like we see the english language do from year to year these terminal terms change the second thing is you know with such a robust language i think it's a much more precise language certainly as compared to english for instance and so we definitely see the Lord's wisdom here, but to your point, we see the influence of this Koine Greek language. And as a result, there's a number of t- new terms that you come across in the New Testament that were not under the Old Testament. So, for instance, uh, angel, you know, a messenger we see in Luke chapter 1 and verse 11, uh, a term, the apostles, meaning one sent. You might remember Jesus chose originally 12 apostles to do work for him and for the lord uh, for the lord god Uh, anyhow the apostles are first mentioned over matthew chapter 10 verse 2 i believe that's the first mention but anyhow matthew 10 verse 2 baptism and you know once again in the greek this is very very precise term meaning immersion whereas if you looked like in english you would see things like sprinkling and pouring if you looked at a typical dictionary definition. But Luke chapter 13, verse 3, and other passages talk about this baptism. Uh, We're introduced to a new kind of love. Uh, Agape love is something that the Greeks didn't really use, even though it was their language, but it's one word that the Lord used to describe the type of love that God has, agape love. And There are other types of love, but 1 Corinthians chapter 13 talks about that. We're introduced to Christ, also known as the anointed one, right? Luke chapter 2, verse 11. Terms like deacon, which means a servant, Philippians 1.1. Evangelist, one who preaches the gospel, or you might say is a bringer of good tidings. Acts 21, verse 8. The Pentecost, which is the 50th day after Passover. Of course, this was the day when the church began. And we read about that in Acts chapter 2 with Peter's sermon. Uh, We are introduced to the Sanhedrin, which was a a 71-member assembly that was a Jerusalem council that resided over matters of their law, Matthew chapter 26, verses 59. We read about the synagogue. This was the local place uh, where Jews worshipped under the old law. And uh, it seems to have originated during Babylonian captivity. And we read about that in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 9. And then even the Bible itself, you know, comes from the Greek word biblia. Of course, if you look at the English definition, it just means books, right? Which is kind of interesting because, you know, it was a bunch of different scrolls, right? Jeff, it wasn't physical books back then. Right. But anyhow, that's what Bible means. It comes from the Greek word biblia. So um, that's the influence of the Greek language Jeff, how about the political and religious influences that we first see under the New Testament?
1: And and we'll certainly see those in just a couple of moments. Although one thing I just might add to the, uh, you know, the list of things you were pointing out, you know, those are just a kind of like a sampling of words you might encounter in the New Testament. Uh, something I might mention is if you do encounter a word in your reading that you don't understand the meaning of, uh, at our website... Uh, under the menu item called Study Aids, uh, you will find a number of different Internet-based free resources that are out there on the Internet uh, to include various Bible dictionaries that you can easily use to look up some of these unusual terms uh, that you encounter uh, that in a lot of cases uh, are, uh, if you will, borrowed from the Greek uh, very similar uh, wording very similar pronunciation uh, in, in fact in our you know modern english language uh, there's a lot of terms uh, that were derived from the greek uh, not just you know uh, biblical terms so having said that Brian yeah let me go to as you said you know political influences beyond just the influence of, of language so as the you know narrative of the new testament starts and i think you mentioned this when we first started our podcast today You know, there's uh, a fair number of what we might call political parties, uh, active political groups, religious groups, a combination of the two uh, that really basically reflect uh, what happened in the previous centuries with all of the political turmoil and the rise and fall of various, you know, kingdoms and powers, et cetera. For example... Uh, in the New Testament, you can see references to the Hellenists. That particular term encompasses Jews, who in many ways uh, had a preference for the uh, Greek uh, culture. Uh, they spoke Greek, they practiced Greek customs, etc. And in some cases, they might have been looked down upon a little bit by their fellow uh, Jewish countrymen, who emphasized you know, you know speaking Hebrew, etc uh we see the hellenists mentioned for example in acts chapter 6 verse 1. in the new testament we also have references to the herodians and of course just having said the name herodians you might think of king herod and you're absolutely right those would have been jews that supported the family of uh, herod and their various uh, uh, political uh, positions um throughout the New Testament, in fact, you may encounter the word uh, or the name Herod, uh, referring really to different people in the same family, which can be a, a source of confusion., uh, uh, for instance, there's the Herod that was, you know, alive early on in the New Testament, and then you know, 30 some odd years later, we'll see a, other Herods and even Paul, you know, interacted you know later on uh you know, with with various, uh, Herod's Um, mention, you know, for example, Mark chapter 3, verse 6, Matthew 22, verse 16. Of course, as Brian mentioned earlier, there's the Pharisees. Uh, That particular religious, political kind of group uh, were somewhat separatist uh, Jews. Uh, Of course, you can see them referenced a whole lot throughout the the New Testament. Uh, In terms of secular writings... Uh, they were first mentioned, best we can tell, around 145 BC. Uh, they were likely successors to the Assyrians, um, which is a word meaning pious, uh, that that particular group originated during the Maccabean Revolt, again, as separatists, you know, separating from, you know, the, the dominant influence of Grecian culture. Uh, along with the Sadducees, we have the, or along with the Pharisees, we have the Sadducees. Uh, Their origins are a little bit squishier, a little bit more uncertain. Uh, They certainly seem to have been influenced to some degree by Greek customs and philosophy. So a little bit looser, if you will, a little bit more liberal, perhaps, if you will, than the Pharisees. Uh, Sadducees, again, mentioned quite frequently in the New Testament. Matthew uh, 3, verse 7, I think, is the first occurrence. uh, And as late as Acts 23, verses 6 through 8. One other party uh, I'll mention Brian, then I'll then I'll turn it over to you. Were the Zealots? Uh, they're mentioned in uh, Luke sixteen, verse fourteen. Uh, best we can tell, they originated, likewise, during the Maccabean revolt, uh, and were somewhat of, um, from our perspective today, we would probably call them terrorists, uh, resorting to violence against foreigners. As a way of throwing off the dominant Grecian rule at the time. Of course, during the Maccabees, that would have been around 165. Went around um, committing acts of violence, assassination, uh, et cetera, in an attempt to throw off the Greeks. So, anyway, there you go. I got Hellenists, Herodians, Pharisees, Sadducees, and Zealots, all originating during the silent years. So, Brian, you know, so far we've been kind of talking about Greek and the influence of uh, Grecian culture, language, politics, etc. Um, how about on the Roman side? Yeah, once the once Rome started to rule that area,
0: uh, we definitely see some influences in many different areas. You kind of touched on earlier, Jeff, some of their modern advancements with technology. When you think about aqueducts and those Roman roads that you referenced that help tie their empire together. Pretty amazing step forward when it comes to uh, Roman influences, whether it be their architecture or, once again, uh, some of the technologies they introduced. But when it comes to religion, you know, outside of Judaism, the dominant religion was polytheism with the Greek and Roman pantheon of gods and goddesses. And so, as we touched on earlier, you might remember from school, you know, studying about, like, Artemis. Uh, of course we read about diana of the ephesians uh in acts chapter 19 uh hermes you know mercury or zeus and jupiter we read about them in acts chapter 14 so you definitely see uh, the roman influence there And and when it comes to you know their customs when it comes to their different rulers as our listeners may be aware they were ruled by a caesar And, you know, we see that over in Matthew chapter 22, verse 17, Luke chapter 2, 1, John chapter 19, verse 15. There's a reference made to Caesar. Uh, You see terms like centurions, which was uh, a man who, you know, commanded typically around 100, right? That's the name centurion, but it it could be greater than 80, I guess, right? And so um, Matthew 8, Acts chapter 10... Uh, Denarius, that was one of the types of coins that they used, and you see that referenced over in Matthew chapter 20, also Matthew chapter 22, verse 19. Uh, a legion, so someone might have led a legion of soldiers, so that was somewhere between like 4,500 to 5,300 soldiers. We read about them in Matthew chapter 26, verse 53. You had things like the praetorium or the hall of judgment. You might remember when Jesus was brought before judgment. He was taken to the praetorium. Uh, This was the palace of the provincial governor or procurator. Uh, We read about them in Matthew chapter 27. uh, Also John chapter 18, verse 28. So Matthew 27, 27. And John 18, you can see that reference there. We read about publicans and tax collectors. And you might remember Matthew himself was a tax collector and Jesus picked him to be one of the apostles. We read about these, uh, this p- occupation, if you will, over in Matthew chapter 5, 46 and 47, also Matthew chapter 11 and verse 19, uh, a quant, a quaternion. Quaternion, I suspect. There you go. Okay, yeah. So quad, I guess, four soldiers, right? Acts 12 verse 4, and then uh, crucifixion and cross. So that was something else we're introduced to in the New Testament that we may not have been as familiar with. But of course, Jesus was crucified and he was hung on a cross. And we read about that in Matthew chapter 10, verse 38. Also, Matthew 27, verse 31, and Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. So, Jeff, lots of references to different rulers, different customs. We can certainly see the Roman influence, right, during
1: this time. Uh, Heavily, uh, absolutely. Uh, To include, you know, various references to, you know, ranks within the Roman army, You know, you mentioned Centurion, of course, Cornelius, uh, Acts 10, uh, a a key focal point with the uh, spread of the gospel to, you know, the Gentiles, uh, etc. So, uh, again, a a lot of influence. To include, you know, unfortunately, the very best execution, I say best, best execution method that the Romans could come up with to, you know, humiliate, you know, the most extreme criminals, of course, that being crucifixion. So, basically now that we've sort of closed the gap, or we've understood what's gone on in this gap of 430 years, uh, now at this point, again, it's roughly 8 BC, 7 BC, something like that. And now the biblical narrative resumes, going back to the thing I quoted at the very beginning of, of our podcast, from Luke chapter 1. And with the resumption of this biblical narrative, We have two children that are born whose lives will basically usher in a whole new era. Of course, beginning with Luke chapter 1, the first of these children will be known as John, son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, the name John might be a little confusing because there's multiple people in the New Testament known as John. But as a young adult, this particular John will go on to become known as John the Baptist. Or a few translations taking the word Baptist and actually translating the word uh, might be called John the Immerser. And after almost 460 years, if you will, once he grows up into young adulthood, he will be the fulfillment all the way back to what Malachi had said previously. Uh, part of Malachi's final prophecy, prophecy regarding the return of Elijah. Now, not Elijah in terms of Elijah being resurrected, not Elijah in the in the far east uh, Hindu, if you will, perspective of being reincarnated, but someone coming, somewhat in the uh, the spirit of Elijah or in the um, very uh, like a, like a prophet, a famous prophet to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, that uh, comparison, if you will, between John the Baptist and Elijah uh, is made uh, in inspired uh, New Testament uh, writings. Luke chapter 1, verse 17, and Matthew 11, verse 14. Of course, after coming onto the scene, uh, promoting a baptism of repentance, in order to have the remission of sins, Which is radical, certainly not in the Old Testament. Uh, He goes on to make certain uh, accusations against the ruling, uh, the ruler of the time, which at that point was Herod. Now, this is a different Herod. This is the son of Herod the Great, uh, Herod Antipas. Uh, He's imprisoned, John's imprisoned, and eventually is beheaded by Herod. Of course, you may recall that later on in the Gospels. Now, I mentioned two children, of course, John being one. Second child, we know of as Jesus, son of Mary and the adopted son of Joseph. And of course, you can read about him uh, starting off in Matthew, you know, chapter one, chapter two. Now, after very narrowly escaping death at the command of Herod the Great, again, roughly around 7 BC. Jesus will grow up to have many designations to include simple ones like Jesus of Nazareth, which is where he grew up, uh, Son of Man, and more importantly from our perspective, Savior (laughs) and the Son of God. Now, from the perspective of the minor prophets like Malachi, he is going to be the fulfillment of all of their prophecies regarding the coming Messiah, prophet, priest, king over his kingdom, Sitting on the throne of David, etc. And the other thing I might add is another frequent uh, prophecy and warning, you know, throughout the Minor Prophets, to include Malachi chapter four, was the day of the Lord. And certainly we can understand that to be at least partially fulfilled uh, within roughly forty years of Jesus' time. Uh, as he mentioned in Matthew chapter twenty-four, with the destruction of Jerusalem and the massacre or enslavement of a significant portion of the Jewish population by the Romans, roughly around seventy A.D., uh, evidently you know after the new uh, after Jesus' time, uh, quite a bit of you know Jewish turmoil, Jewish insurrection, etc. cetera. The Romans had had enough came in, uh, sieged Jerusalem, uh, eventually broke down the walls, just like the Babylonians had way back around, you know, 600 B.C., uh, destroyed the temple that had been previously built by Zerubbabel almost 600 years before, uh, the same temple that had been uh, considerably enlarged by Herod the Great around 20 B.C., And again, destruction of the, you know, the fall of Jerusalem, destruction of the walls, destruction of the temple, dispersal of the population. Again, very similar to what had happened with the Babylonians. And certainly from a spiritual perspective, this reflected God's judgment on the Jewish people for their basic uh, rejection of the Messiah that God had sent to them. And again, that's. You can read a little bit about that, uh, Matthew chapter 23, verses 34 through 38. So now we have the arrival of, well, the the passing through the narrative of John the Baptist or John the Mercer, along with Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Uh, And that kind of wraps up, if you will, or starts to wrap up our study in terms of what happened during the silent years between the end of Malachi and the beginning of the gospel narrative. And, you know, Brian, as we kind of do begin to wrap up our study, could you maybe read, and if you want to comment, uh, as you'd like, on Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, which I think kind of summarizes what we've been talking about.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is when you think about this period of time when Jesus finally came to the earth, and, you know, some might ask, well, why did God choose this time for Jesus to come? And, you know, we're not really told necessarily explicitly other than what we do see in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, where it talks about the fullness of time. And so here it says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so the law being referred to, is the Old Covenant, the Law of Moses, the Old Law, whatever term you'd like to use. And ultimately, this phrase, in the fullness of time, kind of gives us an idea of God choosing a specific period of time where the political, the economical, the cultural, and even the religious influences, you know, at the close of these silent years, as we've been saying, kind of facilitated or made it the best environment for the rapid spread of early Christianity around the Roman Empire. In fact, when you look at the book of Romans, it is interesting. You know, Paul talks about, of course, when Paul was in prison in Rome, he even converted some of Caesar's household to show you how influential the gospel was. So Jeff, even though the Bible doesn't tell us specifically why God chose this time, it did seem to be A perfect environment for what God wanted to accomplish. Um, And as a quick side note, you know, I do think it's interesting when Jesus was here on this earth, he said on many occasions that it was not yet his time to do something. So, you know, we certainly get the impression, and it makes perfect sense, that God had a very concrete plan and that he wanted enacted at a certain period of time when to see Jesus and even when Jesus arose. There would be several years where he would preach and teach before he was ever crucified, all part of God's plan. So, anyhow, when we think about, you know, once again, this rapid spread of Christianity around the Roman Empire, you know, we kind of look at the environment. We see, for instance, that the, you know, first the Grecian and then the Roman domination had left the Jews hungry for their Messiah to come and set up his kingdom. Uh, You had this Roman unification. Where there was you know relative peace and safety that followed, they built this extensive road network, you know that allowed increased travel through the different provinces or different parts of the world, which certainly was uh, a help to spread the gospel. Um having the Jews around the empire, coupled with the local synagogues, provided a distributed community of faith already familiar with the Old Testament scriptures and the prophecies and promises of the coming Messiah. Uh, when you look at the diversity of Gentile nations across the empire, coupled with the you know the common language of this Koine Greek, this also to help you know really help to facilitate the rapid spread of the gospel message. And then when you look at you know Greek philosophy uh, and an unfulfilling religious pantheon of human-like gods and goddesses. Um, you know, this left people, many people, really hungry for a a personal God, right? A God who loved them, a God who would allow them to establish a very personal relationship with them that Jesus would talk about. Uh, And so the environment, Jeff, seemed to be pretty ripe, didn't it, for a Messiah to come and for the spread of the gospel
1: to occur as we read about in the New Testament. Well, and exactly. And I guess if if you pause to think that, you know, Unlike today, you know, they didn't have the internet, they didn't have email, television, social media, etc. Pretty much it had to be, you know, spread by, you know, word of mouth or, you know, handwritten letters. And yet from roughly 30 AD, you know, within a few decades, you know, the gospel had pretty much gone significantly around you know the roman empire and of course from there you know afterwards even even further out so yeah as you indicated probably a a number of factors most of which kind of rose up during this period that we sometimes call the silent years to sort of set the stage for an expedited you know spread of the gospel Uh, and and, you know not only spread of the gospel but but also give the early church. time if you will to sort of get spread to get rooted before various persecutions would arise you know first them from the Jews but certainly later from the Romans you know in the 200s 200 AD etc uh, you know the very very early 300 AD where they sought to exterminate the church uh, but but thankfully as you said in the fullness of time you know the you know Jesus came Church was planted, if you will, uh, and flourished enough to withstand and eventually triumph over the various persecutions that occurred. So that kind of, you know, Brian, you know, kind of brings us to sort of the end of today's podcast. And of course, as, as we started off, we t- noted the gap, if you will, between the end of Malachi 4, around 435 B.C., at the end of the Old Testament, Gap between that and beginning of the gospel message with Luke, chapter 1, and the uh, conception, if you will, of John the Baptist around 7 BC. Again, roughly 430 years of silence, although even though silent from a biblical perspective, very, very rich in terms of, you know, the rise and fall of empires, languages, religions, political parties, etc. Uh, that, if you will, help, you know, again, set the stage for the prophetic return of, quote-unquote, Elijah, who would prepare the way for the Lord. Of course, we recognize that being Jesus the Christ. So hopefully for our listeners, this study has provided somewhat of a, if you will, a conceptual bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Hopefully it gives us a a much greater appreciation for God's wisdom uh, coming up with this plan in the fullness of time, as Brian was referring to earlier. And hopefully we'll give our listeners a much better understanding of New Testament words, customs, and culture. Brian, I'll toss it to you for any uh, closing remarks,
0: yeah, I appreciate that. And uh, you know, it's always interesting to me to kind of study this period of time. I like period pieces. You know, sometimes you'll see movies that'll give you a sense of what life was like back then. and, uh, as we we touched on at the beginning of this podcast, this is a long period of time, right? Over 400 years, where we just kind of wondered what happened, you know? And and of course, the Lord revealed what we needed to know, right? We didn't necessarily need to know all this, but I do find it interesting to know, you know how the environment formed by the time Jesus came on the scene, so to speak. So for additional information, if you go to our website, biblequestions.org, and you look under the Topics section... If you choose that alphabetical index and select the letter P, we have more information on prophets, both major and minor. And there's an article called A Survey of the Prophets Epilogue, which you might find interesting in that section. If you go to B, we have more information on Bible history, A for Apocrypha, and then J for both John the Baptist and Jesus. So I would encourage you to take a look at that information for your own studies and benefit from it as you can.
1: Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions Podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at biblequestions.org.